Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers, bringing you another deep dive this month. So last week we covered Cabin in the Woods, which is one of our favorite horror comedies. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to that. And this week we'll be discussing Our Cabin Fever. (laughs) And it also happens to be the movie that we're covering. (laughs) A dual conversation. Uh, Before we get into that conversation, though, we just want to have a little disclaimer at the start of this episode. Um, As everyone is well aware, there are lots of recent and ongoing events due to the COVID-19 illness all across the world. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing a movie that has to do with a pretty gnarly, bloody infection. You know, so it may be a little triggering for some listeners right now. So if that is you, you might want to press pause on this episode and come back and listen at a time when the world isn't so crazy. That said, it is a horror comedy, or at least it evolves into a horror comedy. And it's about a flesh-eating bacteria or virus. So it's a little different. Yeah. But just in case. Yeah. So with all that being said, Cabin Fever is a 2002 American horror comedy film co-written, co-produced, and directed by Eli Roth in his directorial debut. We have been saying that a lot in our episodes Mm -hmm. lately. Um, And it stars Ryder Strong, Jordan Ladd, and Serena Vincent. The plot focuses on a group of college graduates who rent a cabin in the woods and begin to fall victim to a flesh-eating virus. The bulk of the music for the movie was composed by Nathan Barr, but composer Angelo Badalamenti also agreed to compose some musical themes for the movie out of enthusiasm for the material. Some of the music for the film was chosen by Roth for the connection to other horror films, including the song Road to Nowhere, which was written and recorded for the movie Last House on the Left. Uh, Eli Roth co-wrote the script in 1995 while working as a production assistant on Howard Stern's Private Parts. He was inspired to write the script based on his own experience with a skin infection he contracted while traveling abroad. Various elements of the script were inspired by Ross' favorite horror films, like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Last House on the Left, and, of course, The Evil Dead. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Howard Stern's Private Parts is actually the name of a movie, so... (laughs) Yes, he wasn't. He wasn't wasn't the assistant (laughs) to Howard Stern's private parts. (laughs) He was a production assistant on Howard Stern's dick. (laughs) (laughs) So before we go any more stir crazy, Hmm. this is Cabin Fever. You know when you've known someone a long time and you just want to kiss them just to see if they're a good kisser or not? There's nothing wrong with that, right? Stay. I feel nauseous. What's well, not funny? Can you help me? No, 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 no. She's not coming near me. You're crossing. You guys gonna kill each other now? You don't look so hot. Help me. I need, need a doctor. I don't want to get sick. I don't want any of us getting sick. We just don't want to get it. I see what we got out of here right now. He's coming towards us. All right, back off. He looked like he was skinned alive. The party man. Is it safe? Don't worry about me. Somebody help! I'm burning! 
hermit is walking through the woods and comes across his dog. When the dog doesn't respond, the hermit leads in to investigate. The dog has died of a bloody infection, and the hermit becomes infected when sprayed with the dog's blood. Meanwhile, a group of friends, Paul, played by Ryder Strong, Jeff, Bert, Karen, played by Jordan Ladd, and Marcy, played by Serena Vincent, are heading to a remote cabin for spring break. They stop at a general store run by a seemingly racist man for supplies. While at the store, Paul is bit on the hand by a young boy named Dennis, the son of one of the clerks. When they finally arrive at the cabin, Bert wanders into the woods with a BB gun to shoot squirrels, but accidentally shoots the very sick and bloody hermit. Despite the hermit's pleas for help, Bert flees and doesn't tell anyone about the incident. The group gathers around a campfire. They drink, tell scary stories, and toast marshmallows until a friendly camper, Grimm, played by Eli Roth, and his dog, Dr. Mambo, join them. <laughs> he leaves when it starts to rain but promises to return. The group waits inside, and when they hear someone at the door, they answer, assuming it's Grimm. Unfortunately, it's the hermit begging for help. He recognizes Bert as the man who shot him earlier, and Bert slams the door in his face. The hermit attempts to steal Jeff's car, and the group runs after him. During a scuffle, the hermit vomits blood all over the inside of the truck. When he moves toward Karen and Marcy, Paul accidentally sets him on fire. The hermit runs into the woods and dies in a local reservoir. The following day, Jeff and Bert leave on foot to get help. They find a strange woman butchering a sick pig, but leave without help when they discover that the hermit is her cousin. At the cabin, Sheriff's Deputy Winston arrives after getting a report of some commotion the night before. Paul tells him a version of the previous night's events, but Deputy Winston seems to be more concerned about Paul and his friends getting to party. He promises to send a tow truck and leaves. The others return to the cabin, and Bert and Paul attempt to clean up the truck. Dr. Mambo, without Grimm, startles them, and Marcy scares him away with a gun. Paul goes to comfort Karen, who is very upset about killing the hermit. He brings her a fresh glass of tap water, which she's been drinking since the previous night. After calming her down, Paul attempts to have sex with her, but instead discovers that she has become infected and has a bloody wound near her groin and leg. The group is afraid of catching the sickness, so they lock her in a shed. Dr. Mambo returns and tries to get inside, but is again frightened away. Bert is able to repair the truck, but begins to vomit blood, but doesn't tell the others. Paul and Marcy get Karen from the shed to get her to a doctor, but she vomits blood in the truck. Bert drives away after being accused of having the illness, and Jeff takes the rest of the beer and leaves into the woods, terrified of becoming infected. Bert makes his way back to the general store and is becoming very ill. He waits outside while the clerk calls for a doctor, but Dennis attacks and bites Bert's hand, drawing blood. The father is angry and accuses Bert of affecting his son. Bert flees, and the clerk and two others give chase. Back at the cabin, Marcy worries that they will all contract the disease. She and Paul impulsively have unprotected sex. Paul immediately regrets the affair and leaves while Marcy takes a bath. She cries as she shaves her legs. With each pull of the razor, she is peeling off sections of diseased flesh. She panics and runs outside, where she is attacked and eaten alive by Dr. Mambo. Paul discovers the hermit's corpse floating in the reservoir and falls into the water while investigating. He realizes that the infection is spreading through the water supply. 
he races back to the cabin where he finds Marcy's remains and Dr. Mambo feasting on Karen. After killing Dr. Mambo with Bert's gun, Paul bludgeons Karen with a shovel out of mercy. A dying Bert returns to the cabin, pursued by Dennis's father and his companions. They shoot and kill Bert, but they have walked into a trap. Paul kills all three of them. Paul leaves to look for Jeff, but instead finds Grimm's corpse. He takes the general store's truck and discovers he is infected right before hitting a deer. He continues on foot and comes across Deputy Winston partying with some underage friends. He confronts Winston about not sending a tow truck and demands a ride. Winston gets a message on his radio about a group of infected kids on a killing spree. He is told to shoot them on sight. When the group starts to turn on Paul, Paul infects and kills several of Winston's friends and knocks out the deputy. Paul collapses in the road and is picked up by a passing truck who drops him off at the local hospital. Doctors there inform the sheriff that Paul must be transferred. Lying in the back of Winston's squad car, Paul unsuccessfully tries to warn him about the contaminated water supply, and Winston dumps him at the edge of a creek. Jeff, who had been hiding and drinking beer in the woods, returns to the cabin the next day. He starts to cry after seeing the remains of all his friends, but then becomes ecstatic upon realizing he's the only survivor. He runs outside and raises his arms in victory, but is shot to death by three officers. They put his body in the fire pit with the other corpses and set it ablaze. Back at the general store, a couple of children sell lemonade they have made out of water from the creek where Paul's body lays. They sell cups of lemonade to the cops who shot Jeff. As a celebration takes place on the porch, a truck containing water bottles filled from the creek leaves the store to make its deliveries. The end. <laughs> Cabin fever's kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> So Cabin Fever had trouble getting made after the script was finished because studios felt like the horror genre had become unprofitable. That all changed in 1996 when Scream was released and brought the horror genre back for the late 90s. However, Roth's script was still not picked up. Studios told him that it needed to be more like Scream. Many potential financiers found the content to be too unsettling, including the use of the N-word early in the film. But filming finally began in 2001 in North Carolina. Kevin Fear premiered at the Midnight Madness section of TIFF in September 2002 and was the festival's closing film. After its successful run at TIFF, Lionsgate purchased the distribution rights and released the film on September the 12th, 2003. It grossed $8.3 million in its first weekend and ultimately grossed more than $30 million worldwide against its budget of $1.5 million. Yeah, it was the cheapest of all of Lionsgate's films that year, and it was by far the most profitable and I remember seeing this in the theater when it was released, you know, and, um, you know, liked, I liked it. It was really incredibly gory and I wasn't expecting that, you know, that much gore. Right. So, and they, they included some of the tongue and cheekness in the trailer. And yeah. I think that's why I, I remember going and seeing it in the theater. It was great. And I saw it opening weekend and it was packed. I saw it on like a, like an early showing on a Saturday by myself and the theater was just full of people. So yeah, it's pretty impressive. Cabin Fever holds a 62% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 44%. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. The, the site's consensus reads, more gory than scary. Cabin Fever is satisfied with paying homage 
to genre conventions rather than reinventing them. Oh, well, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I can see both. I can see him reinventing some of those tropes and paying tons and tons of homage to movies that clearly influenced him, you know? Reviewers observed the film's homage to low-budget horror and thriller films, with some comparing it to movies like Night of the Living Dead, Deliverance, The Blair Witch Project, and others. IGN said Cabin Fever struggles valiantly to be both a worthy addition and homage to these titles becoming instead a passably enjoyable slab of schlock (laughs) slab some critics said the movie suffered from genre and tone inconsistencies roger ebert gave the film 1.5 stars out of four he was critical that the film alternated between horror and weird humor getting nowhere he said that the movie quote could develop its plague story in a serious way like a romero picture or 28 days later but does not However, directors Peter Jackson and Quentin Tarantino greatly admired the film. Peter Jackson complimented it as unrelenting, gruesomely funny bloodbath. And Tarantino went so far as to call uh, Roth the future of horror. And I think he also said that it was the best American film that year. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I can't remember a whole bunch of things that came out in 2003, but I mean, that's um, that's pretty high praise, Quentin. Mm, Yeah, so. Although, I mean, I can see where he's coming from, you know? After I saw Cabin Fever, I really thought very highly of Eli Roth after that, after just seeing one movie. So I, yeah. I would agree that he's the future of horror. I think he still is the future of horror, actually. So Could be. Uh, so it got some accolades. Um, at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film. At the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, it was uh, nominated for Best Wide Release Film, Best Screenplay, and Best Effects. And it won Best Score. It was ranked number one most gruesome movie disease of all time by Total Film Magazine. And you can still see it ranked on a bunch of those lists today. I need to look up some of those lists, actually, because I want to know what the other ones were, like what other gruesome diseases there have been in movies. Because, I mean, a lot of times when you watch movies about diseases, they're fairly tame, right? Because a lot of them were like dramas, you know, Mm -hmm. and this movie certainly is not that so let's uh let's talk a little bit about eli the bear jew roth <laughs> okay or as his name was in uh that one tarantino movie inglorious bastards yeah inglorious bastards <laughs> i like that movie so obviously he went on to uh direct hostile hostile part two uh the grindhouse uh trailer for thanksgiving <laughs> oh my which god yeah there's that moment where the girl's like uh, jumping on the trampoline, trampoline. <laughs> she gets in, and the knife goes under the trampoline, and she yeah. Anyway. I need him to make that movie. I, I know, just do, and people tell him that all the time, you know. And he's always like, "Oh yeah, we're thinking about it." I'm like, "No, no, no! It needs to happen. It just it has to happen, <laughs> Eli. You have to do this." And then uh, something called Nation's Pride and the Green Inferno and Knock Knock and mm-hmm. Death Wish. I haven't seen any of these. And then the house with the clock on its in its walls, uh, which is more recent with Jack Black and Kate Blanchett, I believe, mm-hmm. which I also have not seen. And the upcoming Borderlands adaption, which we've already talked about in a previous Shooting the Flames episode. So I'm a really, really big Eli Roth fan, right? I really enjoyed Cabin in the Woods and um, Hostel really changed my life sort of you know like it's i I really 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 love hostile and that's kind of an unpopular opinion i think sometimes i even enjoyed its sequel right yeah i think it just it's it's the poster child for that you know for torture porn torture porn 
And I mean, that's actually part of what, I mean, this, this info, we'll talk about its legacy a little bit later, but part of, of what he started with cabin fever and hostel and hostel part two is, um, you know, the, the backlash against that, including cabin in the woods as part of that backlash. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty interesting. And I, I think hostel is a good movie. I think there's a kind of a stroke of genius there. Yeah. It was a little triggering for me having stayed in hostels in Europe and having kind of similar experiences or at least adjacent experiences. But, um, I think that it's, it's, Hostel isn't as bad as you might remember it and sometimes worse. Um, <laughs> but I think it started a, a lot of like B, C and D movies that were just trying to gross you out, just yeah. trying to do torture porn uh, as compared, you know? And I mean, that's true. And I think that he started a movement in horror or at least continued on, you know, from movies like Saw and things like that. And then other filmmakers just sort of maybe took it a step too far or maybe it just wore out its welcome because it seemed like a lot of horror movies post cabin fever, post hostile were really violent, really gory. And um, I haven't, I still haven't seen uh, human centipede. Yeah. And I haven't either, you know, and it's just like, um, not that, not that I don't think I can handle it, you know, it just sounds gross. And I think I just have to be in a particular mood to watch something like that. A lot of Eli Roth's other movies from that list are just fantastic. I think that he's a gifted filmmaker and I mean, it's like knock, knock is, it is impressive and good. Like I, I like it very much. The green Inferno is another one of those like boundary pushing gore movies. And it's, you know, a remake of, of cannibal holocaust you know yeah and i mean like like tarantino eli roth is really good at paying homage to the movies that clearly influenced him when he was younger right mm -hmm. I, he has a very deep profound love of horror and i feel like no other genre does that you know you don't see directors like playing homage to like dramas or romance movies or things like that it's always horror where these directors are so reverential to each other which i think is great yeah because you have people like us and people like eli roth who you know grew up watching and loving horror movies and you know when that when horror is your chosen genre of film you know like you're pretty much a rabid fan and, and you watch whatever you can right and it does start to influence things even just for like normal lay people but i mean like i i think that Eli Roth was so influenced by some of the movies that he watched that he was destined to be a filmmaker. Right. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. And not to belabor the point, but um, I think like human centipede is actually when people started to call it torture porn. And that's when kind of the public opinion kind of switched and shifted on it. And mm -hmm. everyone just kind of got on the bandwagon to, to call it that and kind of turned against it. Well, and I'm in a lot of different like Facebook groups uh, that are for that are for horror fans, right? I mean, and, and several LGBT uh, Facebook groups for horror fans, and you know, when everyone's talking about like, oh, which genres do you like the most and the least? I mean, like everyone always says torture porn is the least. Like, I don't like it's it. Popular. I don't like it. You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't even like calling it torture porn, really, because well, who could like that? that phrase no one can like that phrase yeah but saw is not cabin fever is not hostile is not the human centipede they're all different movies yes that's true yeah. so that fucking journalist who created that term <laughs> i just i'm coming for you sir we need, we need to have some words <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. But Eli Roth has also uh, had his hand in television, including Hemlock Grove, which was uh, a Netflix horror show mm-hmm. that came out a couple of years back. And I kind of liked the first season, but it kind of went off the rails and I didn't. And I think he was he was an executive producer and he just did the pilot. I, I don't know how many other episodes he actually directed. He also did something called South of Hell, which I have not seen. And of course, History of Horror. Yes, which I found very entertaining and very fascinating. And they're doing another season of that. So I'm really looking forward for that to come out. I in a couple love years. that he's a working director and that he's doing that. Yeah. He was so fun to watch in that show because he did a lot of the interviews for it, right? And like, really, it's just like nine episodes of him and other horror directors and writers and actors, like, sort of like fangirling out over everything, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, he truly is a fan, you know? I mean, we, talked about that at length already but just watching those episodes of history of horror you get like a glimpse into like how deliriously giddy he gets about horror movies and just loves to talk about them and it's yeah. just fascinating and you can see his passion in the in the movies he makes so very much and cabin fever is no exception right so yeah so maybe we should actually start talking about cabin fever <laughs> yeah so let's uh let's leave eli roth alone for a little bit and we'll just start talking about his directorial debut so we have a cast of characters that's pretty strong, in my opinion, in this film, starting with Ryder Strong from Boy Meets World fame yeah. as Paul. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about Paul as a character? I mean, he's the audience. Yeah. Um, you know, he's the stand in. So mm-hmm. he's supposed to be kind of the blank canvas on purpose. You know, so I think that he almost has the hardest job to do. But I think he sells it. I think he sells it well. He played it straight and, you know, and just enough for when all the wacky shit starts to happen at the end, because the end of this film is just batshit. And he truly is the character who changes the most in the movie, right? So clearly he's the protagonist. Yeah, he's our Ripley. Yep. And he has a very drastic change throughout the movie from from the start to the end. And I mean, it's kind of neat to watch. Because it really just happens so quickly, right? Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you've had enough, you've had enough, right? And then if, if uh, someone else didn't have a harder job, or if someone at least had just as hard of a job, it was Jordan Lattice, Karen. Yeah. She goes she goes through the gamut in this film as far as, you know, having to be a romantic lead, you know, and then kind of like flirting with possibility with his character, and then also having to kind of be the victim. Really, the main victim of this movie, I would say. Right. And she's a victim in so many ways, right? She's a victim of the disease itself. And she's a victim of her friends, you know? And it's just like, it's really sad, the parts of the movie when she, you know, finally contracts the virus and we start to see the signs of it. And they just lock her in a shed, you know, because they had spent so much time in this movie, you know, being friends. And it's clear that they've been friends for a long period of time, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the minute, that she seems like she could be contagious, man. They just like throw the bitch outside. Yeah. And it's so sad. And she gets to, she, she really does sell it really well. Cause she gets like, she's over the top emotional about the whole thing. And then uh-huh. you can just see her kind of die inside where she's just like, fuck you guys. I'm going to light up a cigarette and stare at you angrily. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, as her skin on her face rots away, you know? And she has the, like the best makeup prosthetics in this movie are put on Jordan Ladd 
Like, it's just, I mean, from the time that she's being escorted into that shed and we get to periodically see her and she's getting worse and worse, right? And they're, like, walking her out to that truck with, like, trash bags on her feet and stuff like that. And to, and then you get to those final moments when we see her and it's just, like, her jaw, you know, her teeth protruding from her face, you know? And it's, you get that horrible moment like we talked about in the synopsis where he sort of like kills her out of mercy. I thought she was dead the first time I watched the movie. I thought he flipped her over and she was dead. And then she starts blinking and I was like, holy fuck. I yep. was just like, this Part is of fucking it. gnarly. And we also have Serena Vincent, which is the other principal that we mentioned as part of the cast in the synopsis. Um, I thought she did really good too. In fact, she actually plays a fairly strong female character in this. And, and what I mean is that she knows what needs to be done and she does it. Like she canoed herself across the lake to go get help. She yep. can trust the boys to do it. You know, she, ch- she kind of takes charge. She's no nonsense. You know, she does have one of the best scenes in the movie though, as far as, you know, her shaving scene. Yeesh. Yeah. That's a, uh... That's, that's pretty fucking it, yeah, gross. It, yeah, there's like alternate <laughs> covers or posters for the movie, right? And generally, it's like the the poster is just like the cabin, and and there's the the forest, and it's all red background. It says cabin fever, right? But there's an right. alternate cover and poster where it's literally her in the bathtub, like shaving, and you can see like you know the blood coming off or whatever it's just every so i i mean i've seen this movie a handful of times right i mean as much as i like it it's kind of a hard watch you know because it it's certainly not something you want to watch while eating or anything like that you know like it gets pretty gross and um that scene in the bathtub every single time when she starts shaving her legs and you know it's coming it's the anticipation of it because actually when it happens you don't actually see any skin being ripped off or peeled right. off. It's the, 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 whatever sores are there are there, uh-huh. you know, and they do some blood effects, but I mean, really it's, it's way worse in my memory of it than it actually is on screen. Yeah. And I, I completely agree. Cause you know, just watching it, I watched it today to, for, for prep for the podcast and you know, I'm it's getting to that moment and I was laying on the couch and I, you know, had a blanket over me and I was so tempted to like pull the blanket over my face. And I was just like, ah, cause I know it's coming and I don't want to see it. And I was like, but I watched it anyway. And you know, it's not, it's not as bad as you remember, you know, and it really is just the anticipation of what's going to happen, you know, because mm-hmm. they, the camera lingers in just such a way of her shaving her legs that you just know. I mean, even if you <laughs> knew nothing about the movie, you know what's going to happen. And yeah. it's just like, just stomach churning and incredible all at the same time it's a fantastic movie moment in horror and then her boyfriend uh was played by joey kern a character named jeff and weirdly in this movie like to me usually the most annoying is like the most overly masculine or like you know toxic masculine character which i guess was supposed to be bert but jeff's character is the one that annoyed me the most because he's just so stuck up and asshole-ish and yeah you know super douchey yeah (laughs) you know and i'm like ugh. from the minute that we get we're introduced to his character i don't know maybe it's just like the smug look on his face all the time or whatever and yeah i don't know he just he's really really a terrible person like i just i feel i feel no empathy for that character whatsoever in this movie And I mean, unfortunately, he he never gets the disease, you know, like the other likable characters get the disease, but not him. 
But I suppose that that sort of makes him the smartest in his douchiness, right? He runs off to safety, Mm -hmm. never drinks any water, never takes a bath or anything like that, you know? Um, And it's just a huge fuck you to all his friends. He's like, I'm taking all this beer and I'm leaving. Y'all do whatever the hell you want to, but I am only concerned about Mm -hmm. myself, you know? And then I think one of my favorite, if, if not my favorite character, is actually the the guy that's supposed to be kind of like the jock character, I guess, or the asshole. Yeah. But that's Bert, played by James DeBello. And I wish I'd seen him on more things. And if, he's a working actor still. I mean, it's just, but I, I just don't see him in anything else. And I felt, I feel like he should have been a much bigger almost like, you know, uh, Chris Hemsworth character in Cabin in the Woods, like he should have like taken off more because I thought he was just like a standout character and actor playing it in this movie. I thought he did such a good job. Well, he's really funny, right? You know, and that that's important, right? To have that comic relief in a horror movie in a way that like Fran Kranz was in Cabin in the Woods, right? Well, kind of shockingly funny, like stupidly funny. You don't expect his reactions to be as like Muppety as they are. Yeah. (laughs) You know? That was my childhood playground. Bert, you asshole, it's not funny. Yes, it is, you fucking slut. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember who he said that to, but it's so, yeah, that's hilarious. I remember I was sitting down and I was watching this with Matt because I was like, we're going to cover it. And he had never seen it. And he just was like, this is great. Like, right as soon as that that happened, (laughs) it was just like, what? (laughs) You just didn't expect that reaction. But it's like, it's like shit like that that he does all throughout the movie. That's just hilarious. What did he say when he was, so he has the gun and he's walking away and, um, some of his friends are like, where are you going with that? He's like, I'm going to shoot squirrels or whatever. He's like, why would you want to shoot squirrels? He's like, because they're gay. <laughs> and they're like, that's terrible. Or don't be a fucking retard or something like that. And uh, he's like, no, I don't mean that. I'd shoot them if they were straight. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> like, um, but that's a good point to talk about, too. They say that a surprising number of times in this movie. And I don't think that I've noticed until now. Like, they're always describing things as gay. Like Marcy does, you know, when she's talking about, oh, we're going to stay at a cabin that's so gay. And then he says it a couple times. And I'm just like, Oof. yeah, kind of the early thousands. But they even, there's there's a couple problematic things, but they were placed into for, for that shock value. I think like the N word at the beginning by the, you know, um, old man Cadwell at the general store. Mm-hmm. And they ask, who's the you know, who's the gun for? And he goes, oh, that's for the N word. <laughs> Yeah. And so, like, I think that moment is meant to make your jaw drop. Right. And I mean, like, those kids take offense to it for sure because they leave. They're like, oh, did he just say that? And it's like, you know, they're driving off and Bert's like, you racist fucker or something like that. Well, and it almost kind of acts as the harbinger in a way. Yeah. I think that's exactly the point in the movie. This is the Mm -hmm. harbinger moment, right? Yeah. And I think it really becomes the harbinger moment whenever that Dennis's father stops Bert for stealing that Snickers bar, Mm -hmm. right? You know, so they already have a bad history between the two of them. And Dennis himself, you know, like biting them or whatever. Everyone knows you don't sit next to Dennis. <laughs> Your whole she's world like, is this general store. <laughs> I really love it when he's like, maybe you should put up a sign. And then whenever he comes back for help, they have that new sign up by the door that says, do not sit next to Dennis. <laughs> it's like, oh we wish, like we're supposed to know who Dennis is. I mean, Shit. obviously, these people have a few extra chromosomes or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 
So uh, Eli Roth is also in this movie a couple times. Yeah, as uh, Justin or Grim. Grim. Fuck. <laughs> Ooh, burned. Scratch mooded. Or whatever the fuck he said. <laughs> yeah, he's a doctor of being a dog. <laughs> yeah, bless his heart for, you know, playing this dumbass character. I mean... You know, and it's like showing his face doing that, you know, as the director. It's great. Yeah. I mean, he did it so well, though. Like, I really I think Eli Roth is also a pretty good actor, right? He's he's really good in Inglorious Bastards, I feel. And I mean, I just in this movie, he's just funny. You know, it's silly. He has that whole like affected accent, right? He's like, come on, Dr. Mambu or whatever. (laughs) He sounds like that fucking rocker chick from the Muppets, you know, Janice, right? Hey, Dr. Mambu. (laughs) But he's also the smiling bald guy in that flashback yep. story they're telling, yep. right? The bowling where they're bowling with with like people's the, parts down there. Yeah, body yeah. parts. The whole bowling alley massacre story, right? It's so random. <laughs> it's random, but it's surprisingly effective to me. Yeah. You know, like I find I find that to be scary, like just the way it's shot or whatever. And you know, when you have his smiling head and the ball return thing, I'm like, eh. You know? Yeah, and I'm surprised that when I first watched the movie that I didn't recognize his face because he like smiles the same way. Yeah. Well, you know, and I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know what Eli Roth looked like the first time that I saw Cabin Fever. So yeah, I didn't know it was the director. I didn't know it, you know, until I saw like the DVD extras. Mm-hmm. So oh yeah, and I watched the DVD and um, the screen, like the the options, screen options are all shaving her. She's shaving her leg, like she'll shave <laughs> yep. her leg, and whenever you go by, it says play and scene selection, and then it shaves <laughs> it again, and it's like special features. And I was just like, oh, you can't escape it. <laughs> God, but I do, I do love the adorable old man Cadwell because he kind of redeems himself by the end of the movie. You know, like you're, he's the harbinger, but also at the end you realize he's just like a sweet old man. Because then, of course, a bunch of you know African Americans come in to pick up their gun, and he goes, "What's up, my you know inwards or whatever?" And they're all like slapping his hand and everything else, and it's still problematic. But I mean, it, it still kind of redeems him in a way because he's obviously very close and, fr- and friendly with them. But it was also sad to hear that he died in 2015. Oh, I don't know that I've seen him in any other things. Distinctive voice. Yeah. I mean, you know, talk about Muppety, (laughs) you know, I mean, like, yeah, (laughs) whenever they're in that store and he's talking about the different kinds of bottles he has and stuff like that. And that he just like he's having this like stream of consciousness, like just. (laughs) rattling off his lines in such a way and he was like oh don't you don't want to spill that oh my no all the foxes will be here and you'll have friends you didn't even know you wanted (laughs) yeah but he has a cadence where i just feel like i feel like if you grow out a beard like in 50 years as you probably i mean well okay maybe 30 years i forgot (laughs) shut the fuck up he wasn't 90 <laughs> no oh my god yeah i probably would I'm like, oh you don't want to spill that fox urine <laughs> <laughs> you'll have friends you didn't know you had <laughs> except, except that i doubt that i'll be that friendly when i'm older like i'll probably be the like scary man who sits on his front porch with a gun under his blanket or something i mean just screaming at children <laughs> so there's some scene call outs definitely like uh, we we've already talked about the campfire scene with the story and the yes it is you stupid whore <laughs> moment <laughs> um i was gonna ask you could you 
because they have that bet right between uh jeff and uh bert of whether they can drink beer the whole time they only be oh, the whole yeah. weekend instead of water be out there yeah yeah i bet you could do that oh i for sure could but yeah i'd be i could do that with fresca or something <laughs> well i mean it depends on the beer like if i'm drinking just straight miller light right which is a really good like sip in beer you know yeah definitely i could probably go an entire long weekend only drinking beer in fact i i mean <laughs> And let's like talk about that too, because I mean, obviously they, they contract the virus by drinking water mostly. Yeah, because right? you see the fucking chunks like in the water. Just like, yeah, <laughs> it looked nasty like, when he you gave her that glass. That? And she's just like, mm, when she drinks it, I'm like, what the fuck, lady? There's something in that cup. And so, but who does that? I mean, who drinks tap water anymore? I mean, unless you have like a Brita filter or something, but like I would survive anyway. Cause a, I drink yes, tap I'd... water every day. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. Like just straight out of the tap. Yeah. I mean, I brush my teeth with it, I guess, but yeah. there you go. Uh, yeah. So I guess I would have caught it anyway. You know, if you had a bet, then you'd probably be, you know, brushing your teeth with the beer. Yeah. Or just but no, saving up. I would, bit, but let's not get into details. I would have won that bet. Hands down. Yeah. Right? I know Bert lost it because he drinks some of the water. And then clearly the, be- the the bet was he could have the rest of the supply of beer. So Jeff, technically, when he ran off with that beer, earned it. Yeah, he did. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so there's another, like, I think that's supposed to be more shocking than it is, although it's still really, like, nasty. If the, I feel like if they were more straightforward with it, it would have been one of the main call out scenes of the film as far as like shocking gross is when Paul and Karen are in bed together and she's upset, you know, and they've just kind of admitted to each other. They like each other and everything else. And he basically starts to finger her. Yeah. And I have some problems with that scene anyway, just, I mean, outside of the, the shocking part. Right. Yeah. I mean, like clearly you shouldn't do things like that. You know what I mean? Like was she she's awake? Asleep? Was she not? Yeah. She was moaning and stuff, but at the same time they have said that there's, there was actually supposed to be a couple of scenes before that where they're getting closer and closer and they're, you know, but they, they took it out in the interest of time and that didn't really bring the story forward. So they took it out. Okay. Well, today, I mean, they probably should have left it in. In today's you know? climate, they never would have taken that out, obviously. But yeah, because it brings into a question of consent, right? And so, like, I was watching it today, and, like, I was really put off by that. I was like, what is he doing? Yeah. I was like, she's asleep. He, There's no need to do that in this movie, you know? I really wish they would have left those scenes in, though. I mean, because, you know, you can sort of, like, see the progression they're getting to, right? Because they kiss when they're on that raft, right, out in the middle of the lake. And she does tell him to get into bed with her, and they are cuddling and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, he wakes up, and she's clearly asleep. And the next thing you know, his hands are down her pants. And I'm like, that's not right, man. You know, like, not just don't well, do that. I mean, he's sort of redeemed, I guess, by... By finding out that it was not her private parts it was a pocket of disease in her thigh that he'd been fingering which is fucking disgusting yeah that is really just nasty and also he must be really inexperienced if he can't tell the difference between a festering wound on a thigh <laughs> and a vagina <laughs> so. would you <laughs> i mean i like to think so <laughs> but 
I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be in that position. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's yeah. really gross. That is a gross scene, and it really kicks off the entire movie. Right from right then, that's like when, the movie yeah. starts ramping up mm-hmm. quickly too. And then we, uh, you know, to me, like the the biggest emotional height, or I guess really the depth of it, is them putting Karen in the shed as we kind of mentioned, you know, it's just that whole like betrayal, not just of her friends, but of someone who said that he basically loved her, you know, that's right. And so it's just sad. It's heartbreaking. And for someone who loves her, right. I mean, he sure goes to bed with Marcy pretty quickly. So, and then they've, they've noticed that the, I I feel like there's some sort of section or, you know, point in the movie where they realize that more than just her is infected. And they don't really get her out of it because she's just so far gone. Well, I mean, and it really is just a matter of like a couple days, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's put in there at night. The next day they're trying to leave with the car. And, and on that very same day, everyone dies, you know, like it's a really quick progression. Were you more afraid of the disease, uh, the hunters at the end, um, the, the hobo or the dog? Of all those things, what were you more afraid of, ter- terrified by? Like, like what in the movie scared me the most? Yeah, or whatever. Um, I would think the disease actually, right? Because it, like the the movie didn't need all these extra things. It was scary enough just with the disease, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it needed the dog, but the dog was still terrifying to me. Oh yeah, well, I'm not afraid of dogs. I'm not afraid of dogs either. But yeah, I mean, like you knew that there was something up with that dog anyway. It kept coming back to their cabin. You know, it had mm-hmm. a whole woods to scamper around and kill things, but it kept coming back. Like it wanted to kill them, you know, yeah. and it remembered them. So yeah, I mean that that is terrifying. And that's what eventually gets both the girls. Yep. Well, I mean, for sure kills Marcy and then almost destroys Karen. But I think we have Paul to thank for her ultimate demise, you know? So, but I mean, the fact that she was just laying there while that dog was eating her in the shed and she couldn't move. She's far too sick to even like scream. Right. Yeah. And when he kills the dog and she's just looking at him like obviously in tremendous amounts of pain, but can't, can't do anything. Can't open her mouth. All she can do is like blink at him because that's like the only part of her body that wasn't falling off. You yeah. know? So, but by far one of the best makeup effects in, in horror movie history, yeah. as far as I am concerned, I can't think of like a more like face reveal scene that kind of shocked me more than, except for maybe the orphanage when the the caretaker lady is hit by the car or whatever and she turns her over and her jaws like completely gone her tongue's yeah. like wagging out i mean i mean there's a lot right but that i mean like that was a really really shocking moment in cabin fever when he he turned her over and you just see how quickly this thing ate her yeah ravages your body of course you we know? know that we saw the dog was licking her face so it's like we don't know if the dog was actually eating her face off and she just couldn't feel it because it was all diseased or if it was just licking her i don't i don't know we'll never know but who cares so and I think we can assume that the dog was infected as well, right? I think we'd have to assume that if I didn't actually realize that it was the same dog, like you said, like Dr. Mumbo or whatever, yeah. like I didn't, I didn't actually connect the dots there because there's been, there were several dogs, right? There is a dog at the beginning um, who was dead. Yep. And I would have, I guess I assumed it was like the hobo's other dog or something. Like I didn't. Well, so when, when he comes up with Dr. Mumbo that they show him, right? 
briefly and it is dark outside but the the girls are afraid of the dog at that moment too so i mean like there's there's constant fear of that dog from both of those women throughout the movie yeah right so i mean it's all foreshadowing to the final event right and that dog was just fucking rough anyway because like whenever paul gets back like fucking marcy's foot is severed and in the yard still in her flip-flop you know that dog like went to fucking down we'll just chomp your fucking you know foot in half or whatever it's just like that doesn't happen i don't think you know and like her head was in the doorway of the shed i mean like there were just body parts strewn about the yard it was like a monster (laughs) or something but this is this is kind of when the movie is ramping up towards surrealism right yeah this is when it starts to go batshit so let's get into the ending a little bit you know, we start, you know, it's basically really gets off the rails as Paul. Everyone else is basically dead or are going to be dead. Um, now, I guess uh, uh, Jeff and Bert are still alive at that point. But Paul's gone off on his, you know, trying to to escape and get help and everything else. But, uh, of course, he falls into the to the reservoir. with, And that was mm-hmm. the most gross thing to me, like him falling on top of the corpse in the yep. reservoir. I'm <laughs> just like, Ugh. because. I make I make the same fucking squeal every time he does that, you know, because he gets he gets like, I'm just going to poke it with a stick, you know. And so he's like getting on the ladder and I'm like, what are you doing? And then every time he falls on that corpse and into the infected water, I'm like, wow, no, what are you doing? Do you need to see like which corpse it is or how like what what are you trying to do? He was like, I wonder if it's the same hermit. Let me flip him (laughs) over and see if there's signs of burning. I mean, like I. I don't understand. <laughs> and you can safely assume that when you walk up to a body of water and you see someone floating in it, that they're dead, A, and B, you probably shouldn't touch it, you know? And so, yeah, he doesn't even get to that, like, horrible realization that it's like the town's water supply Yeah. until after he's already climbed out and, like, looked over at the sign. It's like reservoir. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. But by then, he's clearly infected if he wasn't already. So, And then we get to, like, him meeting the, the group with the stupid cop. And, uh, you know, the guy gets the harmonica beaten into his neck and you see the harmonica in the neck. (laughs) And then he runs over that deer and it's obviously a fake like puppet deer (laughs) that's kicking him in the face. (laughs) And I'm just like at this point, like um, I think it was Eli Roth that actually said if like the audience is not on board at this point, then fuck them. Yeah. You know, he's like obvious like they were all laughing when they filmed it because it was so stupidly fake. And by that point, you know, people in the the townsfolk going after fucking uh, Bert because he stopped by and got bit by fucking uh, Dennis. (laughs) And that was so weird when Dennis is like screaming pancakes at him. Pancakes! Pancakes! Doing his taekwondo. Yeah, and he like jumps off the swing and he's doing all this fucking martial arts shit. And I'm like, what in the hell? (laughs) I remember, like, the first time I watched this movie, I was like, what in the fuck is going on? It was, like, slow motion, too. It was like this kid gets off his bench and starts doing, you know, flips and shit at the guy and and then bites his hand. Yeah, and, like, makes him bleed, you know, this time. And so, like, I was just like, this kid is just insane. But, um, yeah, that's just bizarre. It's the most bizarre moment in the movie. I do wonder what the story is behind pancakes, though. Like, why is he saying pancakes? Yeah. I mean, like... I the only thing that I can think of that would make like less sense here if he said like Jellicle or <laughs> Mini Chlorians or something shit like that, you know? Like 
Jellicle. <laughs> Jellicle. Like, what the fuck does Jellicle mean anyway? But it means nothing. I digress. Anyway. And then, of course, we get everyone basically dies. They get shot up by the people. And then we get the uh, subverted racism at the end with <laughs> uh, our favorite adorable old man Cadwell. Crotchety old man Cadwell. And then the, the reveal of the of the, cl- the fresh, clear mountain water getting <laughs> loaded up in trucks and sent out. This is an easy sequel. It really was just a bizarre ending, right? I mean, the last like 15 minutes of this movie are just insane. And, you know, when the movie's actually ending before the credits and they're having like that fucking jug band playing on the (laughs) front porch of the general store and shit. And everyone's just sitting around and knee slapping. And it's just like a really bizarre like way to end the movie. And like the kids are selling that lemonade and clearly like everyone's getting infected. And I was just like, okay, it's a party, you know, like. I get it. You know, I was on board for it, you know, like as odd as it seems the last 15 minutes of this movie, like I, it never struck me as so odd that it was out of place. Right. Yeah. It seemed like a fitting ending. It works up to it because it really does start like a, a horror movie. Right. And then it just gets more and more surreal and tongue in cheek as you get to the end to the point where it ends in full on horror comedy. And I kind of wouldn't have it any other way. No. If they had tried to stretch out a flesh eating virus for an hour and a half, you know, it's going to get a little boring after a while. There's only so many ways that we can see people like lose their skin and body parts and whatnot. And so like if we had just seen five kids slowly succumbing to an illness, that is not the movie I want to see. Mm-hmm. I want to see dogs ripping people apart and I want to see deers kicking at people through a windshield, you know, and I want to see someone choking on a harmonica and making the musical tones every time he breathes you know i mean like these are the these are the things that make this movie so good it's what makes cabin fever cabin fever it's very special yeah and so i mean like kudos to eli roth for this ending and i'm glad that he stuck to his guns you know i can only imagine how many studios turned him down for the material and possibly for the ending itself being like what the fuck is all this shit you know and he's like well i'm not going to change it so i'll just wait or whatever you know it is it is it's so unique at the end that it's almost overwhelming and i think that's what the reviewers missed when they were saying it's copying but not you know doing its own thing it definitely did its own thing it did i mean like it clearly clearly did i mean i can't the there's no other movie I can think of that, you know, ends in this particular way. It takes such this huge turn away from its general storyline and still closes that storyline at the end of the movie. And this is also where they get the the, the other reviewers say tonal, you know, yeah. issues. I mean, and maybe it's just before it's time, you know, or something like that. Maybe. But I mean, there is some direct copying in this movie, though. Not not a lot. But I mean, it's 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 more of a homage, like we said earlier. But there's a scene when um, Marcy is canoeing across the lake and she gets out of the boat and she starts walking up to the house that Bert and Jeff are already in. We just don't know it yet. Yep. And the camera is shot from behind her and down. Right. So it's sort of like right at her ass. And it like takes in her body walking and the house as she's moving closer to it. And that is a direct shot from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) So, I mean, like, directly taken. So, I mean, like, it's clear that he loves that movie. And I was just like, that's perfect. It's perfect that he could you could add something in that horror fans will look at and know exactly what he's trying to do. You know, that, so speaking of that, that woman at that house uh, kind of reminded me of Kathy Bates a little bit. 
Yeah, very much. He's like, do you see this shit? Do you see this sick hog? <laughs> I want another hog. And I was just like, oh, Lord. <laughs> like, we don't know so-and-so. I can't eat oh, this. Why didn't you just say so? <laughs> Would you eat this? Uh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> we don't know so-and-so. Oh, why didn't you just say so? Come on in the house. I got a radio. <laughs> so funny. Crazy. So um, let's talk about the look and feel of this movie, right? Because we we've already talked about some of the camera angles and camera shots, but what did you think about the way that the movie looks overall? It looks and sounds like if, you, if also if you include yeah. like the music in this, like it looks and sounds so fucking good for a directorial debut that was only shot for like relatively yep. tiny amount compared to most other even horror movies that are made for you know even five, six, seven million that are relatively low budget compared to like even cabin in the woods 30 million you know this is one done for like 1.5 million and the investing was kind of shaking they had to be really really uh careful about the how they did things they would figure out how to do things on the day you know a lot of the time for this and figure out new ways how to do things because a lot of these people were inexperienced and um you know i think it looks amazing for, for yeah, I, I completely agree with, with you. Um, I was sort of shocked when I read, you know, what the budget was for this movie and the fact that he, you know, he got some really high profile actors to be in it. And I mean, the movie looks good. It's got some really good effects, really good practical effects in it. I have to say, like the casting overall was amazing, not just for the main people, but for all the people in the town and everything, too. He just got some amazing casting done. Everyone pulled their weight. And the music is great. I don't know how in the world I've never noticed it before. This is the first time that I've watched this movie and I was really paying attention to the music in the background and I was just like, I need to make a mental note to go and listen to this score because it, there are certain moments that it is just amazing. I was just like, this is perfect. Yeah. Tonally perfect. Like the score just fits so well in that exact moment, you know, and it's just, I was just like, bravo, that's well done. So, Yeah. And I don't know who that composer is. Mulholland Drive, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, David Lynch. So he did the score for Twin Peaks. And he only did like three pieces of music that are featured in the movie. Like, I know he did the the deputy's theme, like when they're standing out around the car. And that sounds very David Lynchian. <laughs> and he did the, the lover's theme where he's sort of fingering the wound, right? I know he did yeah. that, that port. And on the dock. Yeah. yeah. When they're on the lake. And then, but you know, most of it, uh, most of it is Nathan Barr, right? And so I think that you know the the bigger chunks of this m- movie or the music that stands out to me really is is Nathan Barr's work. And I'm just really string heavy in certain parts, and it's just like I just it, it fits so well. Well, totally, it goes well with the movie too. As the movie gets more surreal, so the music gets more tongue in cheek too. Yeah. You know? So so yeah, I am going to sit down and give it a listen. I think I think I'm going to do that fairly soon. Overall, I think the legacy for this, I mean, obviously the movie did well enough in public awareness for it to be remade uh, fairly recently, but I, I I literally don't think like Cabin in the Woods would have happened without this movie. As batshit as this movie gets by the end, as some of the scenes were almost exactly the same yep. kind of going through, like I, I really feel like this was an influencer for probably a lot of horror movies, but especially for Cabin in the Woods, I think. Well, and I, you know, so 
we talked about how Cabin in the Woods is sort of this like meta commentary on the horror genre and how Joss Whedon wanted to, you know, sort of show his disdain for torture porn and overly gory horror movies. Right. And I think that, you know, by crafting the beginning of his movie, almost the exact same way that Cabin in the Cabin Fever starts, I think he's making a direct reference to this. I'm not quite sure that Joss Whedon likes this movie very much, you know, but I don't know. He might. He probably likes the how how funny it gets by the end. I'm sure that that it's kind of that middle of the road. But like if you take like Evil Dead or Wrong Turn or something uh, Cabin in the Woods is much more cabin fever than those other two, if you think yeah. about it. No, and yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, yeah, the movie does have, you know, a legacy. It was popular enough. It made enough money to have a sequel and a prequel. And that shot for shot remake almost, you know, based on Eli Roth's script, right? And, and it was just made in 2016. So, you know, less than. Did you see it? No, I've, I re- I've read a synopsis. I didn't know it. it had a prequel. Yeah, so cab there's Cabin Fever, Cabin Fever 2, Spring Break, and then Cabin Fever Patient Zero. So it has a prequel. So Cabin Fever 2, is that based off of this one or is that based off of the remake? So yeah, so uh, apparently Eli Roth wrote a script for Cabin Fever 2. And apparently it's even more batshit crazy than this one, right? And so when he pitched it to studios after the popularity of this movie, they were like, no, 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 we're not making this one. Like, you've just crossed a line, right? Yeah. And so he went on to do Hostel and other things. And so Ty West the director of like the house of the devil, he made the sequel cabin fever two and wrote the script for it with Eli Ross blessing. Right. So I have not seen the sequel, nor have I seen the prequel, nor have I seen the remake. Right. I just, um, and not, not because I hear that they're particularly bad, you know, but I also don't think they're particularly good, but Eli Roth came out and said that he was a fan of the remake. You know, he, he was an executive producer of the movie. Yeah. But when I heard they were making the movie based on the script less than 20 years, you know, after its release, I was just like, why? You know, I was like, I don't, I don't know what could, what were you going to do differently than you than they did in the first one and i think there's some subtle changes to it you know like there's an explosion and shit like that but i mean yeah i don't know the, this one doesn't seem too dated i mean you're stuck in the woods your smartphones aren't gonna work if that was the difference you know it's like well um, and they had cell phones in this movie he's like oh yeah. i don't get a signal right it's a little flip phone or whatever i mean like there really is or was no reason to make that movie with and they didn't even make any really stylistic changes from what i hear it's just like a almost a shot for shot remake with different actors so yeah i mean i might go and watch it it's on netflix just to do a comparison right but like i can almost guarantee you that i wouldn't like it as much as the original so I've got some fun facts for you. Good, because I bet the fun facts from this movie are going to be really fun. <laughs> so let me have them. So I know that you have, like, I probably gave away my DVD, but I, I'm sure you have the original. Yeah. So I don't know if it was a special feature DVD or special edition or something, but mine had a special scaredy cat mode with hand silhouettes that would come up and cover the screen during all the jump scares or gore scenes. What, really? Yeah. <laughs> I need to check. Yeah, I do have the original DVD. I don't even have it on Blu-ray. So, and I've never once hit like special features on there. So maybe I should, because that sounds funny. Because like I said earlier, I was ready to cover my eyes during that razor scene right so mm. i mean that, that might be hilarious well they i think they advertise it on the back of the box so i don't have the box anymore i just keep them in a binder oh yeah, yeah. Wah, wah. 
So the audition scene the producers chose for actresses who wanted to play Marcy was her notorious, it's like being on a plane, you know, where you just want to fuck someone Yeah. if the plane's going down, in which uh, Marcy compares her dire situation to being on a plane doomed to crash. So this was an unfortunate choice on the part of the producers because the scheduled date for the auditions was September 11th, 2001. Ooh. So the producers made efforts to call off the additions, but due to the general chaos gripping the U.S. that day, they found it impossible to contact a lot of the actresses before the scheduled audition time. So consequently, the auditions went ahead as planned. Serena Vincent's portrayal of the scene won her the role of Marcy. Oh my god, that have got to have been just the worst fucking audition day ever. Like, you want me to read what? <laughs> yeah. Good god. So Bert's shirt says ripe on 61304. Do you know what that means? No, but I I noticed it today. I was like, I thought it was like his graduation day or something. I don't know. No, it was the date that Mary Kay Olson and Ashley Olson turned 18. Fuck me. What? <laughs> oh. Oh my God. <laughs> Damn it, Eli. It's <laughs> a little a little too far. Holy shit. So while filming a particularly bloody scene, Ryder Strong decided to go for a walk in the woods between setups. So he was covered head to toe in blood and he happened upon a group of 35 schoolgirls who were on a field trip. And the girls <laughs> screamed at the sight of the blood-drenched hiker and then screamed even louder when they realized the hiker was the star of Boy Meets World. <laughs> so the girls chased Ryder through the woods. And Strong eventually made it back to the film crew and vowed never to wander off between scenes again. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. I can just imagine that. Oh my god, it's Ryder Strong! <laughs> Sign my teen bop. So another thing similar happened to another crew member, Robert Jones. And uh, he had taken home the decapitated body prop once uh, the film wrapped. And was pulled over while driving home by police officers <laughs> at gunpoint. He thought the corpse in the passenger seat was real. So the police held Jones at gunpoint until they were able to confirm the lifelike body was only a prop. <laughs> That's so funny. Because I would do that shit too. But like, oh, I was a little souvenir. And that just goes to show you like how amazing these practical effects are in this movie. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, shit. What else? So... The pancake scene was made up during filming after Eli Roth saw Matthew Helms, Dennis, practicing Taekwondo during a break. He discovered that Helms was a real-life black belt, so he decided to add the scene to give him a chance for Helms to show what he could do. There was also an extra on the DVD of the kid doing a whole bunch of his Taekwondo. Well, I guess I mean I get, that makes sense now then, but my God. I mean, at the time, it was so fucking rando, right? Well, it's, it was randomly filmed, apparently, and yeah. I, I'm just, I just want to be in the room, or I guess on the set, when he's telling him what to say during the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe they just let the kid pick whatever he wanted to say. He's like, Maybe just that say was something, scripted. pick a word. <laughs> Pancakes. <laughs> Fuck. So. Peter Jackson stopped all production on Lord of the Rings Return of the King three times to screen this movie for the entire crew. Wow. Jackson was so enthusiastic about the film, he gave director Eli Roth publicity quotes. Shit. Wow. He really yeah. did love it. Well, obviously, I mean, Peter Jackson did Dead Alive or Brain Dead, you know, right. depending on which country you're in. And that's what his whole thing was before he got famous with like Frighteners and everything else. So director Eli Roth 
originally got the idea for the movie while he was working. You know, obviously we already mentioned that uh, from his personal experience, but it was from him working in Iceland on a horse farm. He got such a bad skin infection from the rotting hay in the barn that his face broke out in sores, bled and peeled off when he shaved. Oh, God. Ew. That's so fucking nasty. Yep. So that's where he (laughs) got that. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) so this one's more more like a fun fact from the movie. Um, Apparently, if you think about it, none of the main characters actually die from the disease in this movie. Oh, my God, they don't. Uh, yeah, because we can assume that they shot Ryder Strong, right? Eaten, but yeah, uh, Ryder Strong was you know shot or thrown to the rocks, you know, and then Bert was shot, and um, Jeff was shot. Jeff was shot, and Marcy was eaten by dog, and, uh, and Karen was shoveled in the head. Yep. So yeah, yeah. nobody. Yeah, because even the hermit didn't die from the disease. He died because they lit him on fire. Yeah, I mean, and he's not even a main character. But yeah, none of the main characters actually die from the disease in this movie. That's fucking insane. Yeah, it's safe to say that they would have died from this. I guess we got to put that in our trigger warning at the beginning of the episode. Actually, none of the main characters actually die of the disease, so you're free and clear. <laughs> yeah, but the effects are pretty fucking gnarly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Those were good. Thank you for that. Oh my God. I really want to start driving around with like props of things in my car. See if I get pulled over. Okay. Well, here at the Film Flamers, we like to ask a series of questions about the movies that we deep dive into and Cabin Fever is no exception. So let's get started like we always do with the easiest answer. Is Cabin Fever a horror film? Absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing adjacent about this. It is in-your-face horror, but horror comedy, right? So I mean, by the end, yeah, it yeah. transcends. Yeah, <laughs> transcends. <laughs> Some would say devolved, but those people are wrong. Mm. Uh, were you scared while watching Cabin Fever? Did I say Cabin in the Woods earlier? I don't know. It was bound to happen. So I know, hey, okay. listeners. If if one of us happened to say Cabin in the Woods instead of Cabin Fever at some point during this episode, please forgive us and move right along. It's because we've been watching cabin movies and we have a little cabin fever. So yeah. yeah. So I know for a fact that I was scared. Um, you know, during the my first watch of this, like in the theater and stuff, just because there's so many different moments to be scared. They have jump scares. They have like the rising dread scare. They have like the tension from like the disease as well as like all the other shit going on, you know, but they break the tension obviously by the batshit ending. Um, but, and I can say that even watching it today, I get tense, you know, every few years I pick this up again and I, I get you know, pretty tense while I'm watching it. Yeah. And I, I agree. I mean, it, it's a very tense movie. I know um, I tend to always get scared when he's telling that, that campfire story about the bowling alley massacre. And I don't know why, but it just scares me maybe because I get frightened of like urban legends and things like that. Like sometimes I will stay up in bed in the dark, like reading the most horrific urban legends and scary stories and then have a hard time sleeping. You know what I mean? Sure. So like, that, that fucking story just scared the shit out of me the first time I watched it. Yeah. And like we talked about, I mean, like some of these really gory moments are are frightening and stomach churning and like it's just hard to sit there and watch. And so, yeah, I was definitely on the edge of my seat the first time and probably every time that I've watched this movie, even though I know what's coming, I don't want to look at it, you yeah. know. So out of five stars, what would you rate Cabin Fever? 
I rate it a four because it's it's so consistently entertaining. Like it's it's rewatchable. It's uh it's there's a lot of homage, but also a lot of unique, interesting batshit stuff in here. Uh, I can talk about this movie, you know, like anyone else that's seen it, you can talk about this movie for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was done so well uh, for what it was. And, you know, I, I can't give it anything less than a four. And I agree. I also give it a four stars. I think that Eli Roth um, is a fantastic director and this movie introduced me to him and I have loved his career ever since. And I mean, this movie is just completely rewatchable and fun and gory and it has just everything in it, you know, that I expect out of a horror movie, including some batshit moments, right? That just really fit. So yeah, fantastic movie. Yeah. Um, so finally, who is the hottest guy in Cabin Fever? So I'm going to have to say James DeBello as Bert. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's a very handsome man. My choice, maybe not. In the moments that he's in this particular movie, because I think he goes out of his way to make himself look hideous. But in real life, Eli Roth is by far one of the most attractive men I have ever laid eyes on. I would have like 10,000 of his babies. Okay. (laughs) Wow. So Eli Roth for me, I think he's just super, super dreamy. Love it. To each his own. <laughs> you don't agree at all. You don't think he's pretty. I mean, he's built for sure. Yeah, you know, but you know, he's not James DeBello. So, who's also kind of what built. can I say? Yeah, James DeBello has a really cute face. You know what I mean? It's the kind of yeah. face you want to like squish with your hands. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, you know? he's adorable. Certainly not that douchey guy. Never remember his name. Anyway. I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Cabin Fever, and I'm glad that we picked and talked about this movie right now, because I know that a lot of people are stuck in their homes, and they're probably going through some Cabin Fever of their own, and I mean, it was just a good way for us to, you know, watch a movie. And break that tension. And Yeah. <laughs> so, excellent choice. Um, and that also wraps up all of our episodes for April, our horror comedy month. Um, if you have any comments or questions for us about this episode or any of them, you can ask us or get to us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Or you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers Or you can call us on our hotline at 972-666-7733. Let us know what you thought. Leave your voicemail and we'll play it on the air on our next Shooting the Flames episode. That's right. We love getting those voicemails. While we are through with all of our main feed episodes for this month, we do have a lot of bonus content over on Patreon, including some sequel ideas for Cabin in the Woods that we released this month. So head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. You can get all of that bonus content and early access to episodes like this one for as little as $2. And finally, we like to read reviews on our Shooting the Flames episode. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go and subscribe, rate, and review us. We will read those reviews on Shooting the Flames like always. And we have a lot coming for you in May, including our deep dive into one of my favorite horror-adjacent movies, The Witches of Eastwick. 
I'm excited. I actually have never seen that film all the way through. I really hope you like it. I mean, it's got fucking Susan Sarandon, Cher, and Michelle Pfeiffer in it. There's really no reason. And Veronica Cartwright, you know? So yeah, yeah. And let's not forget Jack Nicholson as Satan. Yeah, it's the devil himself, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's a really good movie. I'm super looking forward to watching again and talking about it. Um, so we have that and much more coming for you in May, guys. So stay tuned. And until our next episode, sweet dreams. Yes, it is, you stupid slut. I think I can't. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, shit. That was so funny. <laughs> no, I don't care. I'll shoot them if they're straight. <laughs> Oh, so many good lines in this movie. For real.